Hello, I'm Mark, and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast for researchers who want to be more productive and achieve real-world impacts from their research. This week, I am with Rosie Neumann, who is a PhD student working with me at Newcastle University, focusing on science policy networks and how it is that we go about communicating, ideally more effectively, with people from the policy community. So this week, we're going to be thinking in some depth, based on her research, about what you can do to communicate far more effectively with the little time you have with whoever you need to communicate with. Uh, Her research is clearly focused on policy stakeholders, but this is already a very diverse bunch. So we're going to think more broadly about what you can do to communicate your evidence so it reaches the right people at the right time in the right way uh, to ideally make a difference. Rosie, tell us a little bit more about yourself and your research and what brought you to this PhD. It's really exciting to be here again. I've been on the podcast once before and uh, it's great to share some insights of my PhD given that I'm just at the edge of submitting. Um, Submitting, that's a very exciting part and it's kind of like uh, really celebrating this milestone with everyone and giving you a little um, sneak preview of uh, what I found out. So um, yeah, maybe uh, as you just said, just a little bit of a background of why I actually done this in the first place. So I have been working as a knowledge broker before for the um, German science policy platform, biodiversity platform. So I am, matter of fact, I am a conservation geek. Um, However, um, I got really interested in like science communication and most of the things that I have found out can be applied through many more uh, disciplines. And uh, I mean, just to give you one of the... um, uh, finding straight away is like interdisciplinarity is like a key thing. We got to involve multiple stakeholders from all sorts of fields. Um, Science is one, but there are so many policy sectors that need to be involved and as well as public and everything. So um, stay tuned for more details. Fantastic. Uh, So there's lots of things that we can say, uh, you can say from experience, uh, working um, professionally with this group uh, over many years. But I think the the value of this is the empirical data that is behind this um, and some of the novel findings um, that have come out of your your research. So um, tell us a little bit about um, the the questions that you're asking and the methods that you're using, just so we can orient ourselves and get a sense of the context in which you're working. Yeah, I already started to use like a interdisciplinary uh, mixed method approach. So I have um, taken like two case studies and uh, I studied them in depth using like multiple uh, methods, including um, a Bayesian network analysis. I'm also using stakeholder network analysis, um, using a questionnaire and um, yeah, and of course backing that back backing that up with literature Um, and this is kind of like an approach that includes qualitative as well as quantitative information so um, yeah that's just the basics for the start. Great so uh, you've got a bunch of interviews in there and some focus groups and um, I got to sit in on one of those focus groups which is nice Um, uh, and and a a real live policy context uh, in a part of I guess it's climate policy uh, broadly. Um, uh, so give us a sense of uh, some of the, the key findings that have uh, emerged from this then. Uh, what are the, the lessons that for you are most interesting? 
Um, maybe we need to go back and really place it with uh, the topic that I've chosen, like the case study topic that I've chosen is on peatlands. Um, I, given that I am a conservation geek, I was like, okay, which ecosystem do I want to apply this kind of science communication uh, PhD topic about? And there are like two topics that kind of came to my head straight away, and I'm very interested in ocean topic. Um, as well as peatlands. So given that Leipzig, where I come from, where I'm based, is not necessarily close to the ocean, I decided, okay, it's going to be peatland. I've got a number of people that I can connect with uh, from my previous studies and previous work. So uh, yeah, and peatlands, uh, I must say, are really, really important for the climate as well as for biodiversity. Um, so there's not only like a climate context, but it's going to be climate as well as biodiversity significance. And um, peatlands are just magic in terms of storing like a, a, an impressive amount of carbon really efficiently. So every hectare of peatland will always um, being intact and full of water. This is how a peatland should be. Then it's going to store more carbon than the same size of um, a forest. Matter of fact, so um, yeah. And uh, it's not well known, so I'm very happy to make this um, topic also a bit more, yeah, famous, let's say it that way, <laughs> get it out there. Um, but I think your question was about... Um, yeah, just, just to add on to that, so uh, I'm up for making fa peatlands famous. Um, uh, we all need to, to, to know where our peatlands are. Um, there was a survey done in Scotland uh, that uh, asked people, where are you most and least likely to visit? And the second least likely place that they would uh, visit, second only to uh, derelict land, was a peat bog. Despite the fact that uh, the number one place people wanted to visit was mountains, and you have to walk over a peat bog to get to a mountain, but we don't even realise... Um, so uh, we shouldn't um, uh, enthuse for too long because the two of us could get on a, on a bit of a vibe here, as to be said. Um, but I think what is interesting about this as a context is this is a highly contested policy context. So first of all, it's climate change policy. Uh, so uh, depending on your views on such things, this uh, is potentially controversial. Um, but uh, in particular, uh, the, there has been um, a lack of policy action in this particular area for many decades based on a conflicted evidence base. Uh, so we had two different groups of people, one saying that restoring peat bogs was good for the climate, another bunch of people on the basis of other data over different timelines saying it's bad for the climate. Uh, and as a result of that conflicted evidence base, policy stasis. Um, uh, and, uh, and so going into that, you then are working with two groups that for the first time in Germany and in the UK have managed to break that deadlock and work out, right, uh, this is as far as the evidence can take us, so let's actually go out and do something and design a policy mechanism, uh, a very similar mechanism in both cases that can enable us to actually restore some of these important habitats and manage them more sustainably. So uh, this, is, this is not a walk in the park. This is a, this is a really challenging, contested area, uh, which is one of the reasons why, for me, this is such a useful and interesting contest to, to examine. Yeah, it is. And I mean, the, the aim of the thesis is really to break down how does the communication network uh, is kind of structured. So um, I looked at two case studies very closely and both of the case studies include actors from both the policy side as well as the research side and, and also additional actors um, that are kind of placed within the NGO area as well as like even um, 
companies, water companies. And uh, this is quite a unique thing. And what I wanted to find out is whether or not, uh, you know, they they, uh, they transfer knowledge to each other and um, ideally leading to decision being made based on the communication each of the actors had with each other. So that's kind of part of the social network analysis that I've done. And um, yeah, maybe we dive into that. Well, well, yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> like in terms of the social network analysis, one of the really amazing findings was like um, maybe to start with, uh, not everyone knew each other. I thought it was a given. So if you want to communicate and try to influence each other in a way to make decisions, then you got to know each other, uh, which wasn't the case. So I actually had to add a specific network of who actually knows each other. And um, the second, uh, I've done several networks um, and the next one was like kind of who transferred knowledge to whom in the network, uh, followed by who uh, received it. So they were kind of two different things on and trying to go into who kind of the one way communication, uh, but also kind of leading what is the difference between dialogue in the first place. So I've also asked whether or not the stakeholders had the dialogue between each other. And that kind of the uh, last network that I've um, um, asked, that, yeah, kind of derived from the research was uh, whether or not people made decisions based on a communication between each other. And, um, well, just, just about the background, um, the really important thing uh, coming from this is really you got to um, make sure that the, the message that you get across is actually received by the stakeholder, by the other person. And this is like really um, linking up to whether or not they make decisions. So if they haven't, if they don't feel like they actually received any any information from the other person, it's less likely that they make decisions based on it. It is a kind of a no-brainer. However, um, most people don't make sure that the message gets across. And this is kind of one thing that we can start with in our communication strategy. Uh, each of us, it um, doesn't matter with what stakeholder we are talking about um, and what we are targeting, targeting at, but this is like really get yourself into the shoes of the uh, target audience and make sure that it gets across. And I mean, one thing that you can do is like having a dialogue with them. Um, so making sure you know them in the first place and they know you and then getting in, into a dialogue because if you're going to have a dialogue then it's it's more of a certainty that you kind of understand each other and make sure that you actually understood and you can also listen to what the needs are from the other side so um yeah i'm i'm sure we can add on this uh, throughout the interview in interview yeah so uh, the key thing to note here is that there are researchers in both of these networks. Um, so uh, you would think, uh, as you said, that uh, these are researchers who are officially part of these groups. They're on technical groups, they're on advisory groups, uh, they, they are embodied, embedded within these networks. Um, and yet you discover that not everyone knows each other. Um, and you've treated the, the researchers uh, equally to all of the other stakeholders. So it's not just um, how do researchers exchange knowledge with these other stakeholders, it's how how do they exchange knowledge with each other uh, as well? 
Uh, and so, um, so, so, yeah, ask yourself, well, just because I am in this particular group, I'm on this email list, I'm on this advisory board or whatever, actually, do people feel like they know me? Do, if asked, would people say, yeah, I know this person? Um, and, and in particular, would they say that they trusted you? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's a step even beyond just, I, I know this person. Uh, and I think that there's a, a really important point about uh, have the person has the person received that knowledge, because I think so often we tick the box when we've done dissemination, and I see so many project reports uh, and even uh, impact case studies where people say, "Well, we disseminated it, uh, we put it out to all these people, and we can look at these incredible numbers. It's been disseminated so widely, but unless I know that somebody received that and actually understood it, then that dissemination means nothing." Uh, and even just saying yeah, I received it, is only part of the picture because maybe I receive it, but it may be actually what I understood is completely different. Yeah, totally true. And if we can go a bit deeper into like the factors that can enable um, and improve the communication between the uh, stakeholders and improve or deli- improve the likelihood, increase the likelihood for decision making. And um, this is a kind of part of the Bayesian network analysis that I've done, which means that um, I looked at factors on how often they communicate, um, how long do they know each other, what modes of communication they're using, and how useful they find it. So one of the things is like I have this kind of um, as is kind of scenario, which uh, I compare the other other ones with, and I'm trying to find the optimal scenario of you know how to improve it, which means like if you already have like a communication frequency of once a year. It improved up and uh, the, the probability for decision making improved uh, compared to the um, baseline scenario. And um, obviously, the best kind of um, uh, correlation with the decision making probability was with when you communicate weekly. Um, however, there's um, like a really cool optimal if you communicate like on a quarterly basis. So that's uh, that's something I've really really appreciated to kind of as a finding, <laughs> and uh, there's the correlation of uh, whether or not you communicate in person or if you communicate via email and um, via phone. So a phone obviously doesn't seem to be important for some people, but there's this frequently frequently communication uh, used. Uh, done via email, surely, um, but there's certainly an advantage of using in-personal direct dialogue communication. And um, yeah, I think that's kind of a little bit of a summary of the Bayesian network analysis. Um, do you've got anything to add? Yeah, so just reflecting on that, um, you may be sitting there thinking, well, that's not realistic. I certainly can't do once a week. Um, uh, but uh, that uh, that kind of scenario where, you know, once a quarter is good enough um, and that's still going to make a difference, that that is, uh, I think, encouraging. And the same with face-to-face. Um, maybe I can't do that um, on a regular basis, but let's, on the basis of this, try and make the effort once in a while to actually look someone in the eyeballs. Um, and and you do get that sense, just experientially, that that I trust you, you trust me. Uh, and it's so much easier to, to build trust and relationship when you are face-to-face. So let's not be maybe too idealistic, but it gives us a, a goal and, and let's just try and push our practice increasingly towards what your evidence suggests works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really want to go a little bit deeper into the trust issue on how to build a trust. And uh, if 
if, we, if the data is kind of interpreted correctly, and it really suggests that there is um, uh, trust development over time. So if we believe that a trust actually can be a legitimate proxy for a kind of decision, like decision making, um, it, you can actually look at there's an initial trust that you've been given to uh, the person opposite you and then you gotta have to prove your trustworthiness in actually the year between one and five years and um, yeah so it's it's a long-term project uh, I've been looking at um, a relationship that lasted less than a year um, and up to like 27 years and um, this is kind of how I kind of got this results from an in the interpretation of the results um, yeah, so there's doesn't seem to be any uh, plateau of like increasing trust over time, at least not until uh, like the, the longest relationship of 27 years. It's kind of still increasing in terms of the probability to make decisions um, based on the relationship and the communication with that person. So it is a long-term project. So uh, you, you got to invest in that relationship and you be aware that you've been given this trust at the very stage, uh, at the very beginning, and you got to prove it, and you got to prove it uh, in regular exchange. So quarterly is certainly an advice that I can give you from the research. So just to, to clarify, in the one to five years, um, is this that um, yeah, less than one year, it's, it's you're unlikely to be viewed as uh, highly trusted, but uh, between one and five years, this is. Uh, the the kind of the window within which most people get to the place where yeah I, I trust that person and I've known them in that kind of region uh, and it's not that it then stops at that point it carries on but um, but but you're looking to be in this game for for at least one to five but of course the longer the better is that a fair interpretation? Yeah, I think so. Um, um, maybe just a little slight difference on my interpretation is like you have it's it doesn't take like a year to um have this given this uh, initial trust i mean trust can be can be broken like in an instant and it's very difficult to kind of regain it so you, it is the kind of this constant communication that you you have to kind of fulfill it in order to do so um at, at least that's that's what I figure from the research. So I'm I'm happy to be proven uh, wrong or kind of um, <laughs> expanding on on how that and it is kind of early uh, early signs from the research. So there's gonna be some more on this on this front. So I'm looking forward to more trust research and get get back to me if, if the results that you might have from your research. I would be super keen. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I've got a project at the moment where we're looking at, um, at the role of, of trust um, uh, in how people learn, communicate with each other and um, and and potentially generate impact. Um, so so lots more discussions to be had on, on that. Um, and I think just intrinsically, we know that trust builds over time and yet it can be broken in an instant. And uh, and I think f for me, the lesson there is that I'm a risk taker. Risk, risk taker. Uh, I, 
uh, have a habit of uh, butting off more than I can chew sometimes um, uh, and putting myself out there because I want to make a difference. And actually, uh, where that risk is to potentially destroy people's trust in me, um, then uh, I need to just go go carefully here because uh, one risk too far may then ruin my credibility with that group um, and, and limit what I can do in terms of impact for, for many years to come. Yeah, on, on this front, what um, maybe like a recommendation that I can already give at this point is um, you got you don't need to do everything yourself. So there are those professional science communicators, knowledge brokers who can kind of help to facilitate this dialogue between you and uh, the policymakers. So make use of that. That's certainly a really important thing. Um, being a researcher, like everyone has like, amazing expertise and knowledge but you d you don't have to be like a born science communicator straight away so i mean that's that's why 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 they are out there and um yeah make use of those and um, they i mean all of us uh, all of the stakeholders involved in solving the today's really environmental problems climate problems everyone has like a unique set of values and beliefs in the background and reasons why they believe what they do and, and maybe not believe in other things and maybe there are good reasons why they are climate deniers and uh, we got to listen to each other and um, those kind of um, intermediaries uh, like kind of uh, knowledge brokers they usually have like really good facilitation skills and mediation skills so um, I'm Personally, I'm a trained mediator, which means that uh, one of the things that I love to do, um, what I've loved to, what I've already done and love to do more in the future is trying to get stakeholders together and um, kind of uh, finding a common language between all of uh, all of the relevant stakeholders present uh, to solve the problems, but um, also to help to um, mediate the different conflicts that might arise given that there are those different beliefs and uh, values behind everyone everyone's viewpoint and uh, yeah it's just a matter of fact and we don't need to kind of fight against it it's just a matter of like how can we create this open atmosphere that we can work together like really really productively and efficiently and respectfully respect is certainly a really important factor for science communication so yeah Yeah, it's funny. I have the same take-home message from some of my own research um, on participation. Um, uh, so the, the one-sentence version of a bunch of my papers, uh, one-sentence version of uh, of your thesis um, uh, is get yourself a professional facilitator uh, because you can come up with uh, all these evidence-based principles, um, and I've done in some of my own research, um, to do this yourself. Um, but uh, but ultimately, the shortcut to this is get someone who actually already knows this evidence um, or through their own experience has, has come up with something akin to that evidence um, from, from their experience. Uh, so, yeah, for some of us, that's within reach. We can afford that. We can plan for it. Uh, for others, that's not so within reach. But ask yourself, who are the people in your network? Uh, is there someone in your research group? Um, uh, do you have uh, a PhD student like Rosie who has some unique skills that you might be able to persuade her to lend you for a day? Um, uh, the, the, so there are, there are people in our networks, in our institutions. Um, and, uh, and even if it's just that they've got more emotional intelligence than us, um, uh, draw on their experience and that intelligence and, and get some help. Uh, and that can go a very long way. 
Um, but for for those of you listening to this who are trying to hone your skills, I think uh, there's a specificity to some of these um, to the, some of these findings that I think is really useful. Yeah, maybe the last thing I really like like to share are like insights of uh, the policymakers' perspective. Like uh, my initial literature review showed that this hasn't been really looked at. So one of the aims with the questionnaire was to shed light into international policymakers' perspective. Uh, um, and I've got like some really cool results from this. And, um, you know, it just really shows every person is unique. Everyone has own needs and own priorities. However, there are some things that lots of them had uh, together had, had in common in terms of themes that emerged. And, um, well, maybe like the, the there are there is this minority of uh, people who would would be happy to just receive um, some results from the research at the end of the project and they are fine with like in this one-way communication um, however it's always good to kind of give them some some idea of when and what to expect at what point so they kind of already merged the research cycle with the policy cycle um, However, there's the majority of policymakers who uh, would be also happy to co-produce co the knowledge from the start. So there is this, this uh, yeah, kind of this need and um, the policymakers are actually looking forward to work with um, researchers more closely together. And this can be from the outset, outside of the research project. So if you happen to kind of plan plan a big research project, trying to get the stakeholders uh, on board as soon as you can and then uh, even uh, co-produce the research questions. So at this very point, you can already make sure that this is aligned with everyone's needs and with everyone kind of resources as well. So is, is that like really um, helpful and applicable for, um, for the for the policy side, like what you wanting to achieve with the research project and is that kind of feasible for you to achieve in the given time with the given resources that you've got. So if you already um, do that at the beginning, I mean, God, that's an awesome start. And uh, if if you're already right into the research project, that it's never too late <laughs> to start. So um, there's always a chance to kind of get stakeholders on board at any given time during the research project. So um It's always good to kind of do a good stakeholder analysis and get them involved and, and build kind of a um, more or less sophisticated um, engagement strategy um, and kind of really make it targeted um, to exactly the person you're looking at. So it's not about only grouping the target audience, but making sure that it really gets there. So put yourself in the shoes of whoever you're deciding to target it and so how do they, you know, get up in the morning? When do they read uh, their newspaper? And maybe it's already a good time to get them on board. Maybe it's the time when they commute to work and they are like super keen on Twitter. That's a good one. Um, and maybe they, it's going to be like an evening meeting uh, where it's like more informal. And um, well, talking about informal, it, it's really, it's not only about exchanging on like really sophisticated research. You got to have this relationship with those stakeholders and this is often based on informal exchange so take the time and, and just discuss that 
uh, at the very beginning. Don't dive into like, oh, those are the five main points for my research. But just ex uh, create this relationship in the first place. And that's kind of, it's it's to do with uh, exchanging things about maybe even your family, if you're okay with that. Or you're like kind of like, where are you from? And then it's, it's so easy to kind of have a connection. And I mean, maybe just an example from my side, Uh, you know, I've I've been um, part of um, of the IPIS delegates, um, so the the big international governmental platform for biodiversity and ecosystem services that just published this massive global biodiversity assessment, and you know you're kind of meeting up with uh, stakeholders and um, delegates from all over the world. And including New Zealand, so I have um, I have spent considerable time of my life in New Zealand, and I am very passionate about the wildlife over there and many 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 things more uh, that I connect with uh, with New Zealand. And it's just uh, it doesn't take five minutes to go and have like a small talk and chat with the New Zealand delegate and kind of get their card and get an invitation to um, to go and contact them when you're over in New Zealand. Uh, it's just like something that you start your communication with. And, and at some point, maybe even after this small talk, uh, at the second meeting, then it's, then it's time when you build this trusting relationship that you can, uh, that you can get your message across and um, to kind of build like similarities. And um, um, maybe that's just kind of, getting a little bit into like this, um, um, we're more likely to take on board m uh, messages from people that are like us. I mean, I can give you the <laughs> sophisticated word called homophily. <laughs> um, but um, if we really want to um, have innovative ideas to tackle our problems, we're also going to take on board like people with uh, ideas and beliefs and uh, that are different from us. So I think I'm doing a little loop here, but <laughs> hopefully you're still with me. Um, yeah. Brilliant. I'm loving it. Um, and I'm getting to get to go to New Zealand for the first time this summer. I'm doing some uh, impact training out there. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to uh, making some connections. Uh, I, I think the, the, the critique that I sometimes hear on this is, well, are you providing the policy community with opportunities to bias or... Uh, hijack research uh, for their own ends um, uh, and uh, certainly the experience that I've had and uh, the stuff coming out of your PhD research is that, uh, that there is genuine interest in helping to shape the, the research to make it as relevant as possible uh, and yeah you get the findings you get uh, and you have the right to publish them whether or not that is quite ideologically where they would have liked it to have gone um, but give us that chance to have that chat early on and, and shape the questions so that they are at least relevant to us whether they go the way we might want them to or not um, and I think you have to have your wits about you there, there will be people who may want to use abuse your 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 findings cherry pick distort and such like um, but but ultimately that's that That relational approach, uh, building trust, you, you get a sense of who these people are. And in the same way that they're judging whether they can trust you, you're judging whether you can trust them. 
Uh, you mentioned stakeholder analysis, so if you're uh, interested to do that, um, there are other uh, approaches and tools out there, but uh, Fast Track Impact, uh, go to the resources page uh, and look for templates, and you'll see the stakeholder analysis template and the research impact planning template um, if you want to then uh, follow Rose's advice. Um, this is about making those connections, making them as deeply and as long-lasting as possible. Rosie, thank you for your time uh, and good luck with the very final stages of writing this up. I'm so excited. We're, we're so close. It's it's really exciting. So I'm, I'm hope if anyone wants to have like the finished thesis, I'm happy to send it out and discuss it because I'm sure like it's just one stage uh, in the research process of getting more evidence and how we can improve the science communication. So I would be really keen to be in touch and discuss things further and uh, do some follow ups maybe. <laughs> and your Twitter handle if people want to talk to you on Twitter. Do you remember it? Yes, of course, I know my Twitter handle. <laughs> it's Rosemarie Katrin. Um, I think Mark is going to link it somehow. And then we can follow up there. I'm quite active on Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn. And um, yeah, and of course, I, I think I can, I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> I have, uh, besides my PhD, I've uh, started my own company called Impact Dialogue and doing exactly what I'm kind of experienced in the past, what I'm working at. Uh, including my uh, my research and getting that into practice so I'm training researchers I'm happy to do a more stakeholder analysis, I'm happy to do coaching and my ultimate goal would be to um, lead one of the outreach packages communication packages of like a big EU project so um, stay tuned if you and if you uh, yeah, get in touch if you think um, you want to discuss any of that a bit further that Fantastic. Put it out there and see what happens. Um, that, that is the joy of social media. And it turns out this podcast as well. Uh, and I do have to say, I have uh, thoroughly enjoyed working with you as a PhD student. Um, uh, unusually, uh, and this has never happened to me before, I, I doubt this has happened to anyone else listening to this. You actually came to me uh, uh, with your first year crowdfunded already uh, of your PhD. <laughs> uh, that says something about the entrepreneurial approach that you've taken throughout your PhD. Uh, and of course, alongside your PhD, if that wasn't hard enough, developing um, uh, your own company. Uh, and this is already an active company. You're, you're doing various things already in terms of knowledge brokerage, uh, mediation, impact training, um, uh, and such like. Uh, so uh, I'll certainly be uh, using your services in future, and um, uh, I'm looking forward to the change in that relationship that's going to be fun. And, uh, and fingers crossed some, some other things come from people who listen to this as well. Uh, I think in summary, uh, this is a, a bunch of lessons about how we can communicate better. And I think, yeah, we've talked about policy, but it goes way beyond just the, the policy community. Uh, we need to think creatively about how we can engage more regularly. Time is limited, uh, but can we make a priority for that small number of key individuals that we've identified perhaps through a stakeholder analysis as being particularly important, who have the ability to really affect change? Uh, and can we just keep those those contacts warm and uh, and and engage ideally at least once a quarter, um, but if we can more, uh, make time for face to face opportunities, uh, even if it's not a one to one, just going to a place where you know that they are going to be and making those connections in the corridors over coffee breaks uh, and such like. 
uh, and not taking it for granted that I put my stuff out there and it's going to make a difference. Well, actually, I need to know if people actually received it. And more than that, if they actually even understood it, um, uh, or at least understood it in the way that I intended. Um, and that may or may not be a problem, uh, but uh, uh, depending on how they reinterpret this and, and the nature of your research, but, uh, but we can't take anything for, for granted. Uh, Lots more besides um, the role of trust, um, so important, um, but I'm going to leave it there. I think lots of food for thought, lots of things that are practical uh, that we can apply in our own work with policy and other stakeholders. So go out there and enjoy engaging more effectively than ever before. Enjoy is a good last word. Enjoy it. Enjoy the process and um, yeah, do it together. Don't do it alone. Uh, we can always uh, be more efficient if we work together. Thanks so much and uh, stay tuned. Have an awesome day. <laughs>